I had the pleasure of listening to you on a panel today, earlier today at 11 o'clock. Oh, you listen. Oh, okay, good. All right. I'll oh, try yeah. not to repeat myself. Oh no, I listened and I took and I took notes. Wow. And then I came back and listened to it again and took some more notes. Oh my gosh. Wow. No pressure. I was registered for that. I couldn't make it. I'll say I could send you the recording. My wife listened to it and she sent me the recording for the part I missed. <laughs> I, I had showings, but uh, Ari sent his people out to show his apartments for him. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> 19 people, Ari. Uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> but it's interesting because like, are you, are you selling real estate or are you running a business? It's like, there's a big, huge, there's a, there's a little bit of both. It is a little bit of both. We can talk about that tonight. I actually, I think it always should be a little bit of both, even if it's two people, but um, yes. Shall we begin? Shall we? Let's go. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit a few more people and let's start. So this is episode 41 of Burroughs and Burbs. I'm John Engel out in Connecticut. My partner, Roberto Cabrera is in New York. Usually people ask you, where are you, Roberta? Where are you? <laughs> I'm in my Manhattan apartment. Okay, west side. Yes. And Ari, where are you located? Are you downtown? Are you east side kind of guy, west side? Uh, our office is downtown in Soho and my home is in Brooklyn. Okay. His townhouse is in Brooklyn. Let's <laughs> okay. be specific. Yes, yes. So I'm very excited about this. I've been waiting, what, a year and a half for this episode because I've been admiring the Harkov Lewis team uh, since we just, since we started this 41 episodes ago. Um, great admirer of your business. You have the top real estate team in New York. You've been named every year by the Wall Street Journal as a top uh, team in the country. And uh, we only have, what, 58 more minutes to learn all your secrets. <laughs> so let's get right to it. By all seriousness, I listened today to a mm. panel uh, where you participated with three other agents uh, and consultants uh, specifically about team building. And I do want to get into that, but I really want this to be a conversation about the market in New York, the real estate business, you know, where it's moving, changes in the industry. It's, this is not just about you and your team, but um, as one of the top agents in the country, um, I'd, like to, I'd like your perspective on where the industry is going. And because we're just coming out of COVID uh, and there's a lot of shakeup in our industry, uh, a lot of changes. Uh, so I just want to get a, a, I guess, begin with a macro perspective from you, Ari, on um, what's changed. You've been doing this as a team since 2013. Correct, right? correct. Um, yeah, I mean, do you want me just like macro overview? Do you have a specific yeah. question or? No, macro overview. Where are we in 2022? Uh, well, as always, I guess I'll start off by saying, I think everything is, is market specific, so. Um, you know, suburban markets are different than urban markets, sub-markets within urban markets are different than other sub-markets. So, you know, hard to paint, you know, 
totally a broad brushstroke. Um, but if you think about it from a broad perspective, I mean, New York City has for the past couple of decades, at least, essentially led the U.S. housing market. And since the start of COVID, we have lagged the U.S. housing market, at least from a pricing perspective. In the last year, we experienced you know, record um, liquidity from a volume perspective. The, transaction, the number of transactions that happened um, was um, astronomical. But from a pricing perspective, we are basically kind of flat to pre-COVID levels, with the exception of a few sub-markets in the city um, that are either a little bit higher, a little bit lower. Um, whereas U.S. housing markets, Miami, Austin, Portland, New York City suburbs, et cetera, are up, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent, you know, ludicrous figures. New York City has lagged. Um, and so the big question in everybody's mind is whether what we're feeling right now in early 2022, which is a bit of an inventory crunch and what feels like the beginning of a price rise, um, is the sign of New York City kind of catching back up to the rest of the U.S., um, which will hopefully be driven by some sort of return to offices and tourism and everything that kind of makes New York, New York, um, remains to be seen. I think a lot of it is sort of COVID driven, but, you know, overall, New York City is fundamentally in a kind of solid, stable place, but the potential kind of run up in values, the potential catch up to the overall U.S. housing market and sort of catch up to everything we kind of lost since uh, March 2020 um, is really tied to COVID. And it's really tied to the intricacies of the New York City economy that are, you know, really kind of based a lot on on commuters. Um, you know, it's the folks that come to offices that get their shoes shine, that go out to restaurants that, you know, are feeding so much of the New York City real estate market. You know, the good news that's come out of COVID is we've realized that people actually want to live in New York City, not just because their offices are there, because they actually want to live there. Um, and that's cool to see. Um, but we can't have the kind of price growth that other markets are having without the funds coming from all over the country and all over the world. Um, so that's where we are today. So, you know, we're coming off of an unbelievable 2021, um, certainly from a brokerage perspective. 2022 is quieter, quieter than 2021 was, um, but still active. Your view, that's, sorry, do you feel that just at one point, do you feel that that's because the inventory is constrained a bit? I think it's inventory constraint. I think, uh, you know, Omicron obviously put a damper on things. It, it sort of feels like, you know, spring of 2021 post-vaccination pre-Delta was like, hey, everybody take your masks off and like COVID's over and this is going to be great. And then, you know, Delta knocked us down, but we kind of kept going with the momentum. And then we started to pick up again and then Omicron knocked us down a little bit. And then you have the holidays and the snow and all the other fun stuff that the winter brings. Um, so yes, I do think that inventory will help push the market forward, um, but it's all cyclical and it's all intertwined. You know, like for example, why is there inventory? There's inventory because people want to sell. Why do people want to sell? They want to sell because they feel like they're getting a good price, you know? So it's kind of like all intertwined. Yeah. All right. So that's a good segue. You see that guy on the screen? It says that you did $432 million and 70 million of that was in December. So I'm a little surprised that you say things are cooling down because you just had your best month ever. Well, the one thing that you know is the month you close the deal is two or three months after you signed it, typically. Um, so, you know, that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is uh, I look at things from a macro perspective. So, you know, even though we might have a good month as a team, I'm looking at kind of the broader market. Sometimes we move in parallel to the market. Sometimes we fall below. Sometimes we're above. Um, but, you know, again, a lot of what closed in December was signed in October, maybe. 
So it says 2021 was a big year for our team. We are planning extensive proactive outreach, direct mail, social media, organic paid signage, bus shelter ads, and you just opened up your own storefront in Soho. Correct, correct. So talk about the marketing outlook. How Some of those, it occurs to me, like bus shelter ads are very difficult to measure. So uh, it, it seems like a very bullish perspective on the market. You're, you're spending money on advertising. You think that New York is coming back. Mm -hmm. You're cautiously optimistic that it'll be nearly as good as 2021. So talk about the media mix and your optimism and why you're spending where you're spending. Uh, so, I mean, there, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So the first thing is... Um, I always think about marketing in terms of, um, I break it down into to marketing and prospecting. So marketing is big picture. It's hundreds, thousands, tens, tens of thousands of eyeballs. You know, it's bus shelter ads, it's e-blast to 30,000 people. It's, um, you know, a direct mail campaign. It is um, a pay-per-click ad, whatever it is you believe in. Um, it's, it's kind of big picture, reaching a lot of folks, building brand. And to your point, very difficult to monetize or to, or to um, accurately capture how you monetize it. Um, but I think nevertheless, very important, you know, like why does Apple's wealthiest company in the world or the, or the most valuable company in the world or one of the most valuable companies in the world and you still see ads for iPhones. So um, they believe in the value of advertising their brand. Um, does it sell more iPhones because there's a banner with an iPhone on it? Probably. Can you measure that directly? I don't know. Um, so that's what I think about on marketing. And then in terms of prospecting, prospecting is more like we think of like hand to hand combat, like making calls, um, writing handwritten letters, texting a past client, going out to lunch with, you know, a referral partner. Um, it's proactive, sort of like one on one or two on one or something like that outreach. And I think the two work together. Um, I don't think you can do one without the other. Um, so in terms of spending money, we're spending money on building our brand, um, but then we're also spending time and energy on prospecting. Roberto, I mean, I could keep going. I want, I want to go down. I want to keep going down this marketing and prospect, prospecting. I'm looking around the the screen at a lot of people who should be out prospecting. Can you talk a little bit more about prospecting? How many phone calls? Is that something that you require of your 16, 19 members of your team? Do you measure it? Is there some discipline behind the prospecting half of this business? Yeah. So um, we, we require um, or strongly encourage, I, I guess I should say, um, a level of prospecting for the commissioned agents, so not the ops team. So administrative folks are not involved in that. Um, and the way I think about prospecting is any sort of any sort of potential contact with someone who could lead to potential business. So we like to keep it open-ended like that because I think it encourages people to do more of it. And it also more fairly encapsulates and covers what I think prospecting actually is. Um, so, you know, walking your dog down the street and chatting with your neighbor for 10 minutes about the market and what's happening and whatever, that's a prospecting touch point as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, 
calling a past client to check in on like how their apartment renovation is going and did they get the kitchen cabinets installed or whatever it is. Um, that's a prospecting touch point. So there's so many ways that you can prospect. You know, we had a coach that we started with um, when we started the team years ago and he always said that real estate is a contact sport. Um, you just want to make contact with as many people as possible. And obviously if you're a jerk, you know, those contacts are not going to be helpful. But if you're a nice human being and you're genuine and you're just interacting with people, prospecting is not like, here's my business card. Do you want to sell real estate? That's garbage. Um, and that's not going to get you anywhere. It's just connecting with other human beings so that, you know, as they start to think about real estate or they're in a room where someone's talking about real estate, the synapses in their brain fire and they connect with like, oh, that guy, Ari, yeah, he sells real estate in Manhattan, right? I should call him. Um, and, and that's what you want to happen. I mean, there have been lots of, you know, like business school studies or whatever that they put out that basically show that we as human beings can keep two or three names in any particular category in our brain at any time. So like car brands, ketchup, you know, whatever, whatever brand um, uh, category you want to pick. So in real estate, there are a billion of us running around, but you want them to think Ari real estate, New York city and make that connection. Do you like, for example, just quantifying that or monitoring that you said it's encouraged to do that right by everybody in your team. Now, from a corporate perspective, like, let's just say you're one of the big banks. They say, how many calls did you make? Is there any sort of follow up? Do you say, how many people did you chat with today? Uh, I know that, for example, Ryan Serhan is very, you know, metrically oriented about you got to do this, this, this and this every, every day. Is there any sort of metric like that that you use or follow up to monitor and at least encourage people to say, look, you're not doing enough. You could do a little more. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, so what we started doing years ago, which I think has been helpful, is um, so we have a Monday meeting for our team every Monday morning. We have an agenda for that meeting. And the first item on the agenda is a chart that gets filled out by our director of operations. The inputs obviously come from the agents. And it's the number of calls, the number of meetings, um, the number of cards you wrote on the chart, publicly available for everybody to see. Um, and you hold yourself accountable. So if you didn't do your prospecting last week and your numbers are really lousy, everybody sees it. Um, that's how we do it. I don't, um, I don't yell at people. I don't micromanage. I don't chase them. It's like, if you do it, great. If you don't do it, it's on you. Um, and what I always remind them is the prospecting you're doing today is going to impact your, you know, your checkbook or your wallet in six months. Um, so that's how we do it. That's how we track it. Um, and again, like we're very loose about it because I want to encourage people. Like I always think about prospect kind of like two emails equals one phone call sort of a thing. Um, so if I reach out to like three or four people who have been, you know, thinking about selling or whatever, and I send four emails out, I'll log that on my prospecting is two calls. Um, you know, you can do it however you want. You could, you know, it's, it's really like, um, uh, it's garbage in garbage out basically. So, you know, if you cheat yourself, you're just cheating yourself, but yes, that's how we track it. Um, that's how we think about it. And, you know, we keep it broad. Can we have a perspective just because you're talking about your Monday meeting, how do you have, you have 19 people in your team? Mm -hmm. How is, how many, who's that breaks down? How, uh, we have eight salaried operations slash admin folks. Uh, we have myself, my business partner. So that brings us to 10. And then the remaining nine are all sales or leasing agents. Specializing in a certain category, uh, rentals up, you know, Manhattan, Brooklyn, like how's that set up? Yeah. So um, we have a bunch of folks who are mostly, if not entirely exclusively focused on leasing. Um, and that was an outcropping of a couple larger rental accounts that we took on. Um, so it wasn't 
it wasn't necessarily that we were seeking that business, but the opportunities came and, you know, they're fairly high um, staffing requirements for rentals. Um, like the ratio between revenue and staffing is not what it is for sales. Um, so we have a bunch of folks who are more or less exclusive, not that they can't do a sale or won't do a sale, but more or less exclusive on um, two large rental accounts that we have. Um, and then the remainder, the sales agents for the bulk of those folks um, are kind of loosely categorized in relative geographic areas. Um, any business that they bring in is their business. Like we don't say, oh, you're only a Manhattan age. You can't do that Brooklyn sale. Their business is their business. So, you know, they're generally, you know, transacting in different neighborhoods. Um, but when business comes in through the team, we try to roughly allocate based on strengths and weaknesses. Like Mark lives in Astoria. Doesn't make sense to put Carrie on an Astoria listing because it's going to be a pain in the ass for her to get to. And he's an expert in the neighborhood. Um, but if Carrie has a client that you know calls her about selling their house in Astoria, it's hers to take on. Um, so that's how we kind of do it. So it's, it's somewhat kind of loosely categorized. Um, but we also try to find demographic fits. Like some people you just sort of have, you know, an interaction with a client and you think like they're going to fit really well with Jack. That's a great personality fit and they're not going to gel with Christy or vice versa. Right. I am surprised how many times you use the word loosely. You are uh, a student of business. You got an MBA. You have a reputation for putting systems in place yeah. uh, with great discipline and you know great analytics so for a guy to, to say loosely so many times <laughs> and earlier today say the best system is the one you use i don't have fancy systems i rely on outlook excel and i use the heck out of outlook tasks yep. um so you I, I, i'm starting to get this picture of this kind of relaxed casual guy um you know, who's pretty relaxed about his systems, but that's not the case. So um, I try to be less anal retentive uh, or appear less so. Um, no, I mean, we're, we're very systems operations heavy um, from a focus perspective, but I like to think that you build the systems and then you got to let people kind of use them and run with them. Um, what I see with too many different groups is they spend a lot of time, money, and energy building out systems, whether it's like Salesforce or some sort of fancy CRM, or we're going to use Slack channel or whatever it is. And I don't mean to denigrate any of those because if they work for you, then you should use them. But I find that the buy-in is very low, particularly for our industry. Like think about the people who you know in our industry who are successful sales folks. They are not systems oriented. And if you make the systems really cumbersome, they're not going to follow them. So for me, like the simpler and cleaner and easier we make them, the more they're going to abide by them. Um, and ultimately we are still in a people business, right? Like I can't take the people side out of the business. Sometimes I'd like to, but I can't. Um, so I try to like, it's keep, keep it simple, stupid all day long. You, Excel, it, it, I can see that with a small team. I, I begin to doubt whether you can run a 19 person or a 38 person team with an Excel spreadsheet. I have an eight person team Barely, like, you know, I've gone from four to eight and I'm still using Excel and I'm beginning to think maybe I need, I want to be more organized and maybe I need a CRM. So this is mind blowing for me that you are still able to scale the business and you're not looking and saying, 
and, and you're able to be organized. Um, the other thing you said earlier today was we have a one hour, I mean, we have a weekly meeting, always, always, always. We start the week with a weekly meeting and one hour is too long. I think the word you used was horrific. <laughs> Talk to me about the weekly meeting, how important it is and why is it so short? So we usually do 20, 30 minutes. Um, we have a pretty tight agenda. We've kind of iterated over the years in terms of what we think, you know, is important to include and what's not important to include. We've taken feedback from the agents, like what they like to hear about and what they don't. Um, and then, as I mentioned on the panel earlier today, we have a member of our team every week who adds a contribution at the end. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, the, the contribution is like, you know, subway history on the S train in Brooklyn or what the latest COVID restrictions are or an interesting thing that's happening in Crown Heights or, you know, anything. Um, it's, it's of their own choosing. Sometimes it can be like, you know, I, I'm, this podcast I'm listening to is amazing and here's why I think it's applicable for all of us. Um, but it gives kind of a, um, a sense of uh, empowerment, I think, for the agents um, and engagement. Um, we have one agent in particular who teaches us about crypto, which has been awesome since most of us are kind of dinosaurs. Um, and, but it's, it's to the point, it's prospecting numbers, um, deal flow, contract sign, closings, new listings, rental deals, um, updates on kind of like internal systems, protocol, office, whatever it is. Support team's gonna be off Monday because it's President's Day as a reminder, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then a contribution and then we're in and out. Um, I think that people's eyes glaze over when it becomes too long, particularly in the Zoom meeting. The in-person meetings, you could go a little bit longer, but I think the Zoom meetings, people are just like, I'm done staring at a screen. Um, so that's kind of how we do it. But then we have the teams grouped within sort of internal teams. So like the operations team will speak, um, the leasing teams will speak. So there are other meetings that happen, but everybody doesn't need to know about all the granular details of the rental deals that we closed in Brooklyn last week. Got it. Keep going. Negotiating. In a recent NAR survey, 80% of home buyers said negotiation skills are very important. And it's part of your brand. You know, you've got a lot of experience negotiating. Last year, you negotiated 217 deals last year. Tell us about the negotiation process and buyer frustration in a seller's market. Well, if we quick. Close 217, we probably negotiated 400, <laughs> um, uh, but you know some of them don't happen. Um, look, it's very challenging, obviously, to be in a market where you're not holding the cards. Um, I think the first thing is setting expectations and just realizing what cards you're holding. Um, it's funny, I was on the phone with a client earlier today who's a very kind of you know savvy, level-headed um, uh, woman in finance, and she said to me like. Literally, I think she used the exact words, I know I'm not holding a very good hand here, but I want the apartment. Um, so it's just sort of like being as rational and level-headed and managing expectations. The majority of our clients obviously are not like her and they do get emotional and it becomes difficult to manage. So I think that's kind of step number one. Um, and if you do that and you kind of set expectations correctly, you probably have solved 80% of the negotiation issues. Um, and then step number two is figuring out like kind of where you can push and where you can't. And for a buyer in a seller's market, a lot of the times it's just sort of figuring out like how high am I willing to go? Like what, what makes sense? What's a stretch and what's just sort of silly. 
Um, we haven't dealt with as much of that in the New York City market as you guys probably have in the suburban markets, uh, but we certainly had our fair share. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, it's challenging, but you know, I think the key is just to, to frame the conversation around this is what's happening in the market. This is what you should expect. Here are the levers that we can probably pull on and here's what we probably can't. And when there are six offers, you're not negotiating. Like it just is what it is. Like I, I can't change that. That's well said. When you're six offers, you're not negotiating. That's really well said. So can we talk a little bit about the makeup of your, like what portion of your business is a rental component? What portion of your business is sales? What portion of your business is sell side versus buy side? Are you doing anything in Queens? Is primarily most of it in Brooklyn, Manhattan? Like, cause you've grown so much. Where, where, where's like, where's your expectation of when you look at your business, where's it coming from? Sure. Um, so from a revenue perspective, rentals last year were probably like in the 10% range, something like that. Um, from a personnel perspective and number of transactions and like headache, well, well north of that. But, you know, from a revenue perspective, probably about 10%. And in a normal year, probably five to 10, I would say on the rental side. So, you know, the bulk of the revenue comes from sales. Um, and the bulk of the revenue comes from resales, by the way, you know, we do some new development work. We did a bunch last year. We're doing some now. Um, but it's not a huge percentage of our business. Um, in terms of kind of boroughs, we have traditionally been about 60, 40, 65, 35 Manhattan, uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan, excuse me. So a little bit more heavily on the Brooklyn side. Um, last year was more heavily skewed towards Brooklyn, partially one particular large client, partially kind of what happened out of COVID where the, the Brooklyn stuff was transacting sooner than Manhattan. Um, and I'm looking, by the way, purely at volume, not um, number of transactions. So just, you know, revenue. Um, we do a little bit in the Western tip of Queens, you know, in a story LIC type of a deal. Um, not a ton, but, you know, we do some. Um, and I would say that's kind of the rough makeup. And as far as like where things are going, I mean, we follow the business. Um, you know, the Steve Kligerman, our head of new development, said to me years ago, you know, when there's food on the table, you eat. Uh, and so we go to the table where there's food. And a lot of that, to be perfectly honest, has moved to Brooklyn. Um, you know, Manhattan's still a great market. We still want to be part of it. Our office is in Manhattan and we think it's an important market to be in. Um, but, you know, if you look at the biggest migration during COVID in New York City, it wasn't to Florida. It was people from Manhattan moving to Brooklyn. Um, and so we sort of serve the clients as they, you know, present the needs. So have people been priced out of Brooklyn? Yeah, for sure. But are they coming? To, I remember several years ago, there was, they were priced out of Brooklyn. So they were looking back on the Upper East Side. And that was kind of prior to the Second Avenue subway coming in. Yep. But is there any sort of like people are coming back to Manhattan in some of the peripheral you know, more elastic neighborhoods? My experience, at least on an anecdotal level, is no. Um, and not to say no, that it couldn't happen, but no, that I'm not seeing it with any sort of meaningful degree. Um, I think that if the return to office is at or above our expectations, then the answer to this question in three, six, nine, 12 months could be yes. Um, but thus far, I'm not seeing it in meaningful numbers. So when we saw you last, which was October, I think, of 2020, um, because prices had come down and interest rates were so low, you had said that infamous, you said, <laughs> you said the, oppor like the opportunity for people to get on the purchase ladder, which I thought was an interesting phrase, yeah. um, was there. 
Yep. Do you think with the relatively low inventory that we have, the tight inventory, that that opportunity still exists? Or do you think that it's kind of passed by a little? Uh, I think it has passed by for the most part, also particularly when you layer in interest rates picking up. Um, not to say that people can't do it. And because rents have risen so dramatically on a relative basis, maybe it really hasn't passed by. But I think that if you were in that kind of first time home buyer bucket and you were thinking about buying and using um, a softer market and a bit lower prices, and when I say a bit lower, not much lower, but a bit lower um, as your way to get on the ladder, I think that window has closed. I disagree. Wait a minute. I think I heard an agent in my, on my team say this week, uh, you need to buy your placeholder house. You've been waiting 18 months for the perfect house. And if you haven't found it yet, you know what? You ought to just buy something and occupy it because you've been renting for 18 months looking for just the right house. And some of these people, uh, I guess, are waiting for a correction that I don't see a correction coming. I, I, I don't see the correction that some of them say, oh, the interest rates are rising and the inflation, you know, the correction is coming. I don't see it coming. Well, just to be clear, I'm not saying that there's a correction coming. What I'm saying is there was a window that was pretty attractive to be a first-time homebuyer in New York City. That window has closed. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a first-time homebuyer in New York City. It just means that the opportunity afforded to you is considerably less than it once was. The sub-3% mortgage is has passed you by. But you know what? Sub-4% is still pretty good. Historically, right. still we're still in pretty good shape. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you if you layer in, you know, unbelievably low interest rates and prices that were down at the trough, maybe five, 10 percent from COVID, that created a unique buying opportunity for first time homebuyers in New York City. And you interest said rates. the New York market is lagging the national market that we still are not expensive in New York. Uh, define expensive. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> Our rates haven't risen as much as many of the other uh, hot metropolitan areas in the country. Got it. We're not Got expensive. It. Next to Austin, my friend just sold her two and a half million dollar house thinking she could buy something really nice in Austin. You get a 1970s fixer upper in Austin these days on a, on a quarter acre um, for two and a half million dollars. Um, I have a question in the chat room says, uh, how does each agent get paid or split pre-agreement case by case? So I know there's a lot of questions about how you attract agents to your team. How do you set them up? Uh, how do you set the expectations up front? How do they get paid? And um, I'm interested in how do you retain them? Because it works pretty well until they get to be very successful. And then it occurs to me that they might say, I don't need the team like I used to when I was a new agent. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in the whole, the whole life cycle of an agent on the team. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, let's start from the beginning. So how do we attract an agent? Um, so the first thing is we have to have a need that we think we're filling. So um, we're 19, not because I wanted us to be 19. Some days I wish we weren't. Um, we're 19 because of kind of an outcropping of, of need and organic growth. So that's the first thing is just we, we have to feel that we have a need to fill, i.e. 
we have business that we're underserving or markets that we're underserving or clients that we feel we could do better with or things that we're letting go or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's the first thing. When we feel that we have a need, um, then we proactively look. It's not to say that there haven't been agents over the years we've met and said like, this is someone we really want. And irrespective of a specific need, we're gonna figure it out, has happened. But by large, I would say we've proactively looked for agents when we had specific needs. Um, and then when we start talking to folks, um, it's a combination of a whole host of factors that are probably too long to get into for this call, but I would say um, there has to be a cult cultural fit. They have to want to be part of a team, which is by the way, not for many agents are in our industry. Um, they have to be of the mindset where they're willing to kind of raise the floor in terms of their income, um, create more steady and more consistent income, but also lower the ceiling because there are only so many checks to go around. And when you split them up, um, you're only going to make so much money as a team member. Um, and they have to like the feeling of being part of something. I think the agents who have really thrived the best on our team like the team atmosphere. They like having vacation coverage. They like having people to call mentorship and guidance and friendships and all the other pieces that become a part of a team in an industry that is in many cases, I think, fairly lonely. Um, and then in terms of the logistics, we have um, an agreement for every agent who joins a team is a signed agreement. It has all the splits on it. The splits, um, as you heard me talk about on the panel this morning, the splits are very, very simple, very clean. There are only a couple of them. You don't need like some, you know, finance degree to figure it out. Um, and it's very basic in terms of how we do it. Um, every dollar that goes through the team gets split at a team split. So the company BHS gets paid the same amount as a matter who transacts the deal. All the operational marketing administrative expenses associated with running the team come out of the team side. So whatever we're taking on a deal, we pay that out. It doesn't come off the agent side. So their number is a net number. Um, we run a single team marketing budget. You know, every dollar flows to the team. I mean, sure, maybe you grab an Uber or something with your client, but no meaningful expenses. Um, and then we have, you know, a couple of very simple split structures that we use, and that's really about it. And that has served us very well for many years, even with agents who have, particularly even last year, become extremely successful. Um, we have a couple agents who have been with us a while who are starting to hit some pretty big numbers. And we've started to have some conversations with them about things that we can do to kind of make the package more attractive to them. But at the end of the day, you know, the things that make them want to be a part of the team remain, and they're mostly not financial. You know, they're mostly more kind of like quality of life lifestyle. Um, so I would say that's the biggest driver. Like if people are happy and they're happy doing what they're doing, where they're doing it, they don't want to move. If they're unhappy, the money can be great, but it's not going to keep them. So is it uh, just a, what I heard you say was uh, it's, it's rather simple, one page agreement. And, it, uh, and once we take out what the agency is owed and the team overhead is owed, uh, I will make more money if I originate the business and if I will make less money if you originate the business and ask me to work on a piece of business. But that's basically all the complication there is. Yes? That's it. I mean, it's pretty simple. And just to be clear, so when a check comes in, the company gets their check, the agent gets their check, the team gets their check, and then from the team check, we pay out our operational expenses. So it's not like it comes off the top obviously it's factored into the numbers. Um, and yes, we do split things differently based on origination. 
although that's something very recent in the past two years, I think. Maybe I was so very surprised to hear you say that because I thought that was the most important thing that we're trying to incent is we want people to make those phone calls, get out there. Don't just wait for me to hand you a lead. Get out there and call your Rolodex. And if you need my help closing, you know, I'm happy to help you close, but everybody has to be responsible for their prospect list. And you really want to encourage that behavior, right? So that's a new phenomenon for you? It's very new for us. Um, I have found, I don't know if this is because of me, us, who we are, the individual members, whatever the case may be, but I have found that the agents, um, their either success with origination or lack thereof is not based on effort. It's really more based on kind of where they are in their career. And they're just sort of like overall trajectory. So we have a number of agents right now who are starting to bring in, you know, a decent amount of business, not a lot, not a high percentage of what they do, but we'll probably get a couple agents who, you know, between last year, this year, maybe the next year, start to move into like maybe a 50-50 range or something like that between team origination and their business. It's not because they all of a sudden started picking up the phone and deciding like this was important to me. It's really more because they're just at a point in their career where they're starting to get that like past client referral and the other things that happen when you do this for a longer period of time and you treat people the right way. Um, so that's been my perspective. You said buying or selling a home is a very intimate transaction. You should be working with an agent who you like and trust. In a market that is seen as increasingly impersonal and transactional, how do you develop a relationship with a client and when does it matter? <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think we exist as a profession because of that statement, right? Like you can you can put a lockbox on a door, you can automate, you know, agreements, you can disintermediate our industry in so many different ways, but the people, emotional, psychological component, you, there's no, no one's figured out like an AI algorithm or a robot to do what we do. Uh, maybe it'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And that to me is like where the rubber meets the road. Like that is our industry. So how do you build the rapport? Um, I think different people do it in different ways. Um, like if you look at my business partner, Warner, he is unbelievable, unbelievably successful at getting people to like him, not because he does it in a fake way, but because he does it in a very genuine way. He'll find ways to connect with people over shared interests or um, emotional struggles in their life or positive things or whatever it is, but he figures out a way to connect with people. And once they've connected with him, it's not about the it's not about the real estate. It's about the relationship. Um, you know, how do you do it? I think that you do it in a myriad of ways. Um, but the best way to do it is just to be super old school. It's like on the phone and face to face. Like that's how you build the rapport. Um, now, as you get to scale and, and our team has grown more in scale, it becomes harder to do that for sure. Um, but ultimately, that's I think that's the foundation of what we do. Um, like we still write handwritten, hand signed, enveloped, stamped cards that we send to people like actual human beings in the post mail, um, because we think that's important. Um, it sounds really like kind of dinosaur ish, but I think it actually works. 
I think that person 171 deals last year, and you're telling me that you have time for relationships. And you have what three? You're 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 married with three kids who probably take a little bit of time as well, right? That's that takes a little bit of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to be clear, I'm not doing all of those myself. Um, and some of those deals come through larger relationships that are more kind of B2B relationships. Like when you get to a developer, or when you get to um, a more institutional client, you know, that business happens on a more B2B level. But don't kid yourself, like even that, like the developer ultimately is hiring the agents who they like. Um, you know, they're not like you could be the most successful sales agent in Fairfield, Connecticut. But if you're a jackass, like the developer is not hiring you, um, or most will not in my experience. Um, but yeah, it's, you have to be like, you, there's no way to scale without it. Um, or you get to a point where you scale, you do really well, but then the business falls off because you've kind of skirted by on what you did before, but you didn't continue to plant the seeds. Like I think about it in terms of farming, you're constantly harvesting those crops every year. But if you forget to plant seeds one year, you're not gonna have a crop next year. I still find, I, I'd like to know how you manage your time with your team, because you're obviously doing an extraordinary amount of business. And that takes a tremendous amount of time. But you literally, you've got to interface with 18 other people. And that, I, I want, how do you do that? Um, so you do it in a couple ways. The first way is you build systems and structure that allow people to be reasonably independent. So everything from email templates, like this is the template for this email and how we send it, take it, modify it, whatever, but here's the template. Um, to um, having the operations team have their own kind of internal calls and run their own things so that they can be independent within their kind of entity. Um, to the team meetings, to various um, touch points. Like I mentioned, for example, this morning, um, an enormous proponent of quarterly reviews. We do a face-to-face -face quarterly review with every team member in a room, 20, 30 minutes every single quarter religiously. Those now take like weeks to get through the whole team, which is, you know, cumbersome. Um, but I find it to be hugely valuable as a way to kind of connect as people, find out what's working, what's not working, um, and then figure out what the issues are and how we can iterate on them and fix them. Um, so build the systems, build kind of the touch points, you know, strategically and, and at various kind of key moments throughout the week, throughout the, you know, the quarter, um, hire good people, hire people, you know, that can be, um, become independent, um, trust those people, by the way. So I don't micromanage. I don't have the time, energy, or desire to micromanage. And I think that when you do that, you kind of empower people to do their thing. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, just sort of oversee it and look where, look where you see problems and try to fix those problems. So, you know, Rome was not built overnight and I'm not saying that we have Rome, but what I'm saying is we weren't 19 people the day we started the team. We were like three or four people and then we've kind of built it organically and grown it over time. Um, but yeah, if I had to interface with 18 people every day, I'd want to blow my brains out. I mean, I, it would be absolutely exhausting. Um, I interface with 18 people over the course of a month, maybe um, like a week will go by. I won't talk to a team member. Um, and that's great. Not because I dislike them, but because they're doing their thing and I'm doing mine. You're, tell me about your admin component. Who, what are the roles there? Um, so we have a director of operations who oversees all the admin, all the listing side, um, and is kind of like quarterbacking the operational element of the business. 
Um, we have a marketing coordinator who oversees all the marketing. We have um, a, an admin who handles contract signing to closing. So she's doing all of our board packages, commission invoicing, checks, what have you. One um, person for that? One person. 271 deals? Uh-huh. Well, you know, you have to remember that townhouses don't have board packages, new developments don't have board packages, um, you know, so rentals don't have, obviously they're not in the 217, but, um, you know, rentals typically don't have board packages, but yes, one person. Um, a person needs a raise. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's listening. Um, and then we have um, a VA who is based in the Philippines, who does Thursday to Tuesday. So he covers our weekends, um, providing like essentially agent support if they need like, you know, showings booked or what have you, um, and kind of filling in like miscellaneous tasks. So, um, you know, know, mailing request forms, mailing lists, you know, anything that can kind of be done that's not time sensitive, um, you know, that he can do kind of on the weekends, um, as well as, you know, Thursday, Friday, um, as well. Um, And then we have uh, four other admins who are on a very large institutional account that we took on about two years ago, who also helped me with fire scheduling, walkthroughs, and, and some kind of you know one-on-one support for me, as well as a little bit for other team members as well. Um, so that's how it breaks down at the moment. My wife asked me about the virtual assistant. I used to have a virtual assistant in the Philippines. And she said, uh, you have one. And she said this too on your team. You have one and the guy with the beard has one. No? We only have one. Um, We have never had two. We've thought about it. Um, My experience has been, um, my experience has been you kind of get what you pay for. So the cost of a virtual assistant is probably 40% of the cost of an in-person assistant. And that's probably the level of productivity that you get. Um, and so it is what it is. It fills a need. Um, we like having particularly the weekend coverage and it's really hard to get that, um, from, you know, a New York based, um, admin, um, that being said, there's a lot of stuff they can't do. And not just because they're virtual, but a lot of it is like cultural linguistic, you know, there are other elements to it. We had a guy in uh, Bangladesh promoting this show for a while, and you're right. It's tough. There's a language barrier, and there's a, uh, it's tough. It's, it takes a lot of uh, <laughs> one of my brain cells to manage somebody overseas, and at certain points, it's just not worth it. Um, Lisa yep. Lipman came on this show, another phenomenally uh, successful agent in the city, and she said many of the same things you're saying. She said she counts how many doors she goes through how many doors she opens every day. And I've never forgotten that. And a lot of the people on my team continue to quote Lisa. They're like, how many, when we start our weekly meeting, they say, how many doors did you go through? Remember what Lisa said? And I hear you saying the same thing. You say, we're not organizing it necessarily in a CRM, but we're going to ask you, how many people did you write handwritten notes? How many people did you call every week? And I think that that's, uh, it's, it's so important. And it's also refreshing in an industry that has seen several of our competitors go public by saying we have technology and we have artificial intelligence and we have bigger, better platforms. And, um, you know, that just seems that's what I began the hour by saying, you know, this our industry is going through a great deal of change. 
we saw Zillow get into the market and out of the market of buying houses, um, competing with agents. Um, and, and in many respects, agents are feeling like their role is being challenged, their traditional role of developing a relationship over one of the most intimate transactions of, of, of our clients' lives. So it's very refreshing for you to say, this is a, the, one of the most intimate uh, and personal transactions of your life. You need to be working with somebody you like and trust. I think that's so important. Talk about how you recruit for your team. Do you go out and, um, I suspect you're gonna say, I don't go out and get the biggest producers what do you what do you look for in your next teammate? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, I'm glad that's refreshing because I don't think technology is getting rid of real estate brokers. I think if it was going to happen, it would have already happened. Um, it's obviously a fairly self-serving statement, but it's my opinion, so I will share it. Um, and and by the way, you know, anecdotally or otherwise, the folks I know who have gone to some of those shops who claim to have better technology are not producing more at those shops than they were previously. Um, so, you know, what's the famous saying? Like, wherever you go, you're there. Um, you know, I always like to kind of think about that. You are the production engine. There is no, there is no CRM that's going to make more business for you. Um, some of the most successful agents I've ever met in the business couldn't spell CRM. Um, and they'll, you know, walk circles around you in terms of the amount of business they will do. Um, so, just a comment. Um, as far as people and what we look for, um, we look for people who are going to culturally fit into a team atmosphere. So they have to want to be a part of a team. And we tend to find agents who are doing fairly well on their own, but not extremely well, have the ability and the capacity to execute on more than they're able to originate, um, and then combine that with the interest of being part of a team. And a team, by the way, that has a certain kind of ethos and culture. So our team is different than a Sarah Hunt team, which is different than an Eklund team or whatever. Like there are a lot of different teams in our industry that do things in different ways. And I don't think any of those ways are right or wrong. They're just their way. Um, so we are, I like to think, um, not as money focused. Sure, financially, that's part of it, but we're more kind of quality of life and lifestyle focused. Um, we are systems and operation driven. Um, we're a no bullshit team. We like to laugh and have fun. Um, and we're kind of a no churn team. Like, yes, we have lost people over the years for sure, um, but people generally kind of come and stay and are pretty happy and we do everything we can to kind of meet their goals and personal needs. Um, and I would always sacrifice a team I would never sacrifice a team member's needs or goals over some sort of, you know, overarching client issue or whatever. Like the team in my mind always kind of comes first um, and we treat people that way. So that's our ethos. I'm not here to say that that's right or wrong, but that's who we are. And I think that's what we attract. Um, and we like to not always, but we like to find people that have been in the business like two to five years ish. Like the growing pains of the first year or two are pretty rough. We have trained some people from day zero, but it's exhausting. Um, and the flip side is I'm not super keen on someone who's been in the business for 10 or 20 years because they tend to have a lot of habits that are difficult for us to undo. Um, so that's kind of my experience and how we think about it. Have you had a successful agent who's not 10, 15 years in the business, say three or four years in the business, who's really doing really well? Roberto, you're not a fit. 
You're not I'm a fit, Roberto. <laughs> I'm not a fit. I'm trying, but I mean, really. Uh, but have you had someone who's two, three years in the business who's really doing well approach you about joining your team? We have. Um, we've had, you know, some people approach us about like, like a partnership level type thing. Um, you know, it, it has to be the right fit. And I, I mean, like also at the right time, like we have to be in a place business-wise where it makes sense. Um, we have to be in a place kind of personally where it makes sense. Like, you know, you mentioned I have three young children and um, I'm a fairly serious runner and like, I have a lot of other stuff going on. Like, you know, it's not, it's not about money. It's just sort of like, do I want to bring this person on right now and go through three, six, nine months of what I know is going to be a fairly heavy lift of integrating them into our team. And there are going to be growing pains, right? Like, so I've never had someone else do my board packages before. I'm freaking out about the error that they just made, you know, or whatever it is. Um, I don't really have the bandwidth for that. The one thing that I have like a zero um, tolerance policy for like absolutely zero is drama, no drama, no emotion whatsoever. I have no patience for it. Um, I think there's just too much in our industry already and there's too much with our clients. So anyone who's kind of like really highly emotionally charged, I, I can't handle um, because they just become like a, a, like a suck of energy. Um, so we stay away from that. How did you guys first start? Just the two of you. Uh, it was very organic and just sort of happenstance. I was quite young and seemed to be maybe reasonably good at executing, but pretty terrible at bringing in business. Um, and Warner had a great Rolodex and was pretty good at bringing in business, but not so great at executing. And he was going away. I think it was the trip. Well, I don't think I know it was the trip where he was getting engaged um, and he needed someone to cover his business. And our sales director said, hey, maybe you guys should connect. And then we connected and it was just sort of like a, hey, let's do a little bit together and see how it went. And then we both kind of had the same thought of like one plus one could equal three. Um, and so we started working together, which was August 2009. And um, here we are 13 years later. Wow. 11 months after the financial crisis. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the fun part for me, uh, I can't speak for him or anybody else, but the fun part for me, I enjoy the, the building process. Like I, I really enjoy that there's no roadmap, there's no manual, there's no like, this is what you have to do now, turn to page 23, you know, clause C. It's just figure it out, paint your own adventure. And it's been really cool to figure out like, how do we build this over time? Like, how do we respond to this market condition, this change in the industry? this, you know, client issue, whatever it is. Um, and how do we kind of continue to fail forward to use the phrase of one of the agents from the panel this morning. Um, and it's been cool. Like there were many years where our business was doubling year over year over year. Um, and not the financial piece is not, the f I mean, yeah, it's cool, but that's not what the driver is. Like the driver was to see that kind of growth and to feel like you did it. Like no one did this for you. That's the fun part. Glory in May. And Stephen Filippo wanted me to say, Ari, you are super pleasant, respectful, practical, and dynamic. So you got some fans on the call. They want to join your team. <laughs> yeah. Very kind. That's very kind. Um, we have too many assholes in our industry. I try not to be one of them, at least most of the time. Most of the, most of the people in our industry are um, running their own business. They are a sole practitioner, like Roberto. And if I asked it, Roberto, you know, to work with somebody else, I think the hardest thing um, is to give up control. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? For any of these agents who are thinking about doing what you did with Werner and getting together and, and basically, you know, the, the peanut butter and the chocolate getting together, they complemented each other so well. I mean, it sounds beautiful, but I know agents in my town, super successful agents and in our firm who say, I am so successful because I have an attention for detail and I can't give, I can't allow somebody else to, um, I can't hand things off. So, you know, talk, talk about that transition and, um, and what you've learned, because now you have 19 people struggling with that, that um, sharing, which is not natural in our business. Uh-huh. Um, so I would say a couple things. Um, the first is you have to start from, um, I think there's a book about this, but I'm not a great book reader about your why, your W-H-Y. Um, like, what is it that you want? Um, do you want to work seven days a week, 365 days of the year? Do you want to retire at a young age? Do you want to work the rest of your life? Do you want to do high price sales, low price sales, big volume, whatever? Like what, what drives you? Um, and your answer is going to be different than my answer is different than Roberta's answer. There's no right answer, but the first thing to figure out is like, what's your driver? Um, what gets you going in the morning? Why is this business fun and exciting for you? Why do you do it? Um, and by the way, if it isn't fun and exciting for you, you probably shouldn't be doing it, but that's a separate conversation. Um, so I think that's step one. And I think it's a step that a lot of people skip over. Um, so what is it that you want to get out of this? We all get like one turn around this earth. Um, and what do you want? Um, so that's the first thing. And then from there, my advice, um, and I know I mentioned this morning, is you need an administrative assistant yesterday. You need an admin. If you don't have an admin, you are an admin. Um, so you don't need to build a team. You don't need to get a partner. You don't have to have 17 agents. You don't need to be on a Wall Street Journal list. None of that matters, but you need an admin because there are things that you are doing every day that are not revenue generating that are such low hanging fruit that if you could start building out systems, figuring out how you do it, teaching someone else how to do it and getting them off of your plate, you will at a bare minimum break even on the expense of having that person and have a better quality of life and most likely make multiples on their salary in more money and have a better quality of life and generate more business. So the first advice I give everybody is the lowest hanging fruit out there is just stop being your own administrative assistant, hire someone. If you don't feel like you can stomach someone full-time, hire someone 20 hours a week, you know, get part-time, whatever it is, start taking all the admin tasks off of your plate. Um, and I always liken it to, um, think about like a doctor's office, you know, in a pre-COVID world, you walk into the doctor's office, the doctor doesn't check you in, the doctor doesn't weigh you, the doctor doesn't check your blood pressure, the doctor's not calling the health insurance company, the doctor sees you for five minutes at the end. They've got all these different people taking all of these other things off of their plate so they can see the most patients over the course of the day. Ultimately, that's what I think you should get to. Like there's certain things that you can't have someone else do for you, but for everything else, stop doing it. Um, you know, and if you're scared about giving things over because you think people are going to make mistakes or whatever, I'm just going to tell you, they are going to make mistakes. And by the way, you make mistakes too, um, but they are going to make mistakes. But what I've learned over the years is 
don't focus on what's what's the the famous saying um don't let uh, great be the enemy of good you know like don't jump over dollars to save pennies um there are mistakes that are going to happen but for every one mistakes nine amazing things are also going to happen and over time you're going to grow the business um so that's my biggest advice i think there are a lot of agents who probably should be individual agents but they should at the very least have an admin I did. I have to plug uh, Richard Grossman, also a big fan of yours. When I asked his advice, he said, be like Ari. And to do that, go get this book, Teams Built to Dominate. The first chapter in this book is on the Harkov Lewis team. Uh, it was written in 2015. And it talks about a lot of uh, what you're talking about today. This was written when you were a team of six. So uh, five years later, you're a team of, of 19. And, uh, but if people are looking for like sample agreements and, and structure, uh, some of it's in this book. Uh, I found it very useful. Um, so teams yeah. built to dominate. Yeah, uh, it's a good book. I mean, it's, it's written by a, um, uh, a commercial real estate broker coach. Um, but I think there's a lot of like, uh, this isn't going to work for me attitude in our industry. Look at anything, look at a dental practice, look at a mechanic, look at a graphic design agency, everybody's running a business, right? So, um, I think just take, you know, take the best from everybody and try to figure out how it works for you. The doctor's office metaphor is really good that there's those layers of people who just <clears throat> peel it down. And then the guy comes in and just deals with the core issue. Very yeah, I just want to show up for the closing, just like my doctor does. <laughs> I don't want to show up for the closing. The closing is boring. I actually <laughs> like the, the interaction with the people and that jet, like, there's no way ever the technology is going to replace what we bring to the table. That touch, that feel, that expression, that warmth, you know, those, that care that you are going, that, that someone can trust you to take them, you're just gonna hold their hand or put your hand around their shoulder and just walk them down the path. It's like, I've been down this path a thousand times. Your path's gonna be a little different, but I know what we're, we're, we're gonna confront. There's no way that technology can, re, can replace that. So let me ask you something. Last time, just wanna switch gears a little bit. Last time we had talked about, you had just mentioned, and which is true, is that life in the United States had for essentially the past decade has, was be moving more into an urbanization, right? It's going into urban environments. COVID put a huge pause on that. And now with hybrid working, people moving out to Connecticut, maybe staying in Connecticut for some or coming in two or three times a week. Do you see that? Or have you seen or read anything where of what's predictable to the future with that? Um. I, the answer is I have no clue. And I think that when people try to predict the future, they usually fall flat on their face. Um, it's like, you know, survey of a hundred economists predicts this. And then you look back six months later and they were all wrong. Um, so I try not to predict the future. The answer is I don't really know. Um, the only perspective that I have is big perspective. Like human beings have congregated in urban areas for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. I think a single pandemic is but a momentary blip. Um, and, you know, how this all happens, what the implications are for you know, New York City and other major urban areas, I don't know. But I have a sneaking suspicion that we kind of revert to the mean and go back to what we've always done as human beings. And that, you know, Five years out, 10 years out, whatever it is, we're going to look back and like, yeah, it was a big, you know, event in, you know, modern human history. But 
I don't know, the 1918 flu pandemic happened and then there were the 1920s. So um, I'm not convinced that there's really a seismic shift that's happened. I think that we psychologically see what's immediately in front of us as human beings. That's how we're wired. Um, what did, uh, I think it was Bill Gates who said, we're really good at predicting the next two years and horrific at understanding or thinking about what could happen in 10 years um, because our brains just aren't wired that way. So I don't know, um, but I think we're all making it out to be bigger than it is. Now, wait a minute, Scott Hobbs, I know you have something to say about this, but Scott and I uh, talk all, all a lot about demographic shifts. And I don't think you can ignore the fact that there's 80 million millennials uh, all trying to buy houses from you in New York, and they all got a late start. And now they're still coming, right? So there's certain things that are predictable in macroeconomics. Scott, help me out here. I mean, we can predict some things. Well, I mean, but kind of back to Ari's point, to back him up and to back you up, there's certain trends that had already started. And I think that, that the pandemic accelerated some trends, but ultimately in the long term, things equal themselves out a little bit. And I, I've always had a skepticism with, about the fact that, you know, humans, you know, we, we kind of revert to a lot of stuff we know. The known is very, very comfortable. And when you get into the fact about, you know, who's going to get the promotion, the guy that comes into the office or the guy that doesn't. And you got to be a lot better if you don't come into the office in order to make yourself stand out from the other people who are really good. So there, there's some stuff that'll happen and we'll, we'll see how it comes together. And again, we, we can all make a shot at the next year, but five years out, I don't have a clue as to what's going to, you know, again, there's some macro trends that I'd say, but, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Okay. Oh, I talked him off the screen. Wait a minute. <laughs> That'll teach me to say something. <laughs> I, I do think though that there's 80 million millennials uh, replacing uh, something like 40 million Gen X and Y in between. So you had 80 million boomers and 80 million you know, you have these big humps, uh, demographic humps, and, um, you know, in the middle of which you have uh, the Xers and Ys, and there's so few of us, and we're being replaced with a lot more home buyers, and you have a lot more people as a result of COVID buying a second home, maybe because there's so much wealth in the economy, but for whatever reason, a lot of second home buyers and a lot of first-time home buyers converging in our market at the same time. So, Ari, real quick, first of all, thank you so much for being here. I find you incredibly thoughtful and extremely bright, and I learn a lot. So, I thank you for being here. Um, can you just get, because we really haven't talked just about Brooklyn, can you just give me a two minute snapshot on what is going on in Brooklyn? <laughs> Uh, I mean, Brooklyn's been the darling child of the New York City real estate market for quite a number of years. Um, you know, Brooklyn benefited from the convergence of people wanting to live in New York City longer and raise their families, um, wanting more space, but not necessarily being ready to go to the suburbs, um, wanting more of a sense of kind of community and neighborhood, which a lot of Brooklyn areas provide that Manhattan provide did years ago, but provides less of today. Um, and then during COVID, of course, you know, green space, more space, bigger apartments, slightly more affordable, et cetera, all kind of came together. Um, that being said, if you look at the data in Brooklyn, I'm a big fan of the guys at Urban Digs and I always watch their weekly updates. Um, and if you don't, I recommend you do. Um, if you look at the Brooklyn real estate market and you peel off the luxury high-end condos and the big townhouses, 
the market has actually been fairly stable from a pricing perspective for the last kind of five-ish years. Um, it did not dip down during COVID. It basically remained flat, um, but it also did not shoot up as many suburban markets did. Um, where Brooklyn goes, I don't know for sure, but I think that we continue to be on a trajectory where the bulk of the market, and the bulk of the market is kind of up to 5 million, you know, the, the gap, the delta between Manhattan and Brooklyn kind of slowly, gradually closes. But the thing that a lot of people forget about is the fact that the upper end of the market in Brooklyn, there's a glass ceiling on that, you know, meaning that, um, the upper end of the Brooklyn market is like not many deals over 5 million, whereas, you know, Manhattan, you're seeing a $50 million deal. That doesn't happen in Brooklyn. I think a lot of people forget that the maturity of the market is not there. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. This has been a great show. Thank yeah. you for coming, talking to us about the New York market, team building, and uh, the evolution of our, of our industry. This has been a really great hour. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Coming up, I think, uh, in, on the third, I don't know if that's, that's not our next show, but uh, we just announced today we're going to have a show on color, and we have the experts from Benjamin Moore and some of the top designers in New York are going to come and teach us a thing or two about color and what colors are in, out, and the psychology behind color. So looking forward to that show. Bye, everybody. See you then. I guess Scott loved the beard. Well, who would have predicted two years ago that I'd have this beard? I didn't. I love it. Enjoy, guys.